Please remain standing for this morning's scripture reading, which comes from the book of Acts, chapter 18, verses 1 through 4 and 24 through 28. If you'd like to use the Blue Pew Bible in front of you or behind you, you can find the passage on page 927. It's the book of Acts, chapter 18, 1 through 4, and then verses 24 through 28. Hear now this reading of God's holy and inerrant word. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross the Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, friends, it's my great privilege to be able to introduce our guest preacher for today. Um, if you weren't aware, we are having our missions conference this weekend, and um, I want to introduce to you Dr. Enoch Wan. He grew up in Hong Kong, uh, and he immigrated to the States for his studies, but since then he has been, uh, he is a, he's a world traveler, and he has been uh, living in many different nations and also uh, uh, frequently traveling uh, to, be, to speak and to um, learn more about what God is doing around the world. He is a professor, uh, he is a pastor, a missionary, and an author of many books. Uh, Dr. Wan is an anthropologist and missiologist by training. Uh, he has taught in various institutions, such as the Canadian Theological Seminary, Reform Theological Seminary, and he has been in Portland, Oregon for the last 20 years teaching at Western Seminary. Uh, he and his wife have two grown sons, and he is the proud grandfather of two grandsons. Dr. Wan spoke at our church. This is, he, he, he's, he's not um, uh, uh, unfamiliar with our church. We're not unfamiliar with him because he, he's been here before, actually two years ago at a prior missions conference of our church. Uh, he was uh, the plenary speaker, but for the Chinese uh, side of the conference, and he spoke in the Chinese congregations. This is going to be a first for us as an English congregation. It's our joy to have him. He has already challenged us in, uh, in, in two talks. Friday night and Saturday night, 
Uh, he was challenging us to recognize just the providential ways in which God is working around this world, specifically how he is scattering the unreached peoples of the world throughout the world, especially into global gateway cities like ours, like Houston, Texas, and how if we want to reach the nations as a church, well, we can start by reaching the diaspora communities that are around us. Just, just within uh, driving distance around us, we can be able to engage with multiple peoples, people groups from around the world. We can begin building relationships with, with them and working with them to reach their homeland and even working with them to reach other groups in our city. And so uh, it's been really inspiring to hear from him. And so we get another chance to hear from him to preach God's word this morning. So let's give Dr. Enoch Wan a warm HCC welcome. Thank you, Pastor Jason, for the, the introduction. Um, I was here two years ago, but only speaking to the Chinese groups. Uh, I don't get to preach in English too often now because of the demand of Chinese churches. Uh, so I preach maybe three, four times a year in English only. So if my preaching in English is rusty and it's very evident and for obvious reason. Thank you for your hospitality. Um, I was surprised that uh, the last two nights we had so many people showing up. I thought the virus scare would uh, keep some of you at home, uh, but it's good that I could share the word of the Lord with you this morning. The last two nights I've been talking about God's way of fulfilling his grand scheme of the plan of salvation by shaking up the population in the world globally. So if we don't count internal migration from the countryside to the city, globally, 3% of the world's population of the people who are living in the place other than the birthplace, their homeland. Those who have been scattered into other parts of the world as refugees, immigrants, international students, diplomats, victims of human trafficking, uh, internal displaced people, and so on. And if you put them all together and form a nation for them, this will be the sixth largest country in the world. As an anthropologist, I study demographic trend, and that's why I propose this idea of updating our mission strategy, modifying our missiological paradigm to the fact that our global scenario is different from what it was for a long, long time. So people who have moved from the place of birth, the place of origin, the place of familiarity and security to a new place, that kind of people is called the diaspora 
people group. And the way to reach them, the kind of mission work, is called diaspora mission. So we have to discern God's will, following God's guidance in order to fulfill the mission of God. Next slide. And we talk about the four stages or four approaches of engaging in Christian mission. When they first arrive to a new place, we share the gospel with them or meet their needs where they are as refugee, as international students, uh, that is ministering to them. And then when they uh, have accepted Christ, they are on fire for the Lord. They, want, they have the desire to have their own family members and loved ones and neighbors and kinsmen to accept Christ. We should motivate and mobilize them and equipping them so that we could engage in missions through the diaspora. That's the second one. When they have acquired the language, adjust to the environment, have their own employment, their own uh, colleagues, co-workers, neighbors, then they already know the language of the host country. Then they could use the language to reach the local people that is missioned by and beyond the diaspora. When they are mature, forming the church, an ethnic church, diaspora community in this country, their country, we partner together to engage in mission that is called missions with the diaspora. So four stages or four approaches in this type of ministry. Here is a bigger picture to show you. Uh, if you have been here last two nights, you have seen this. Those are the arrows showing you the movement of the people uh, globally. By and large, uh, people move from other countries to these seven uh, industrial nations, US, Canada, Australia, Japan, uh, and many countries in the Europe. So the trend of the movement of the people is from, from the southern hemisphere to the north, from other parts of the world to the west, by and large. So we understand the trend, and we follow the way God allowed people moving around, then we should uh, be able to meet people where they are, scratch where it itches, and then share the gospel with them. Today, we want to look into a case study of a couple. Before we do that, let me ask, how many of you, your parents, are living in the place where they were not born or grew up? How many of you, your parents, are diaspora? Raise your hand. Okay. Thank you, thank you. So if you are not diaspora, you will be children of diaspora people. And that's not accidental. And it's not necessarily tragic. Uh, even it, at the conclusion of Genesis, you remember the story when Jacob passed away. The older brothers were very afraid that their 
younger brother will abandon them. But then Joseph assured them, you meant to harm me, but God meant to use me to save many people, not only the Jewish diaspora, but also the population in Egypt and also neighboring countries. So from our human perspective, people moving from the homeland, if it's refugee, uh, political or violence or otherwise, uh, is very unfortunate. But our Lord is the Lord of history. He knows what He's doing, even though sometimes we don't. And here is a story of a couple, uh, Aquila, Priscilla. The first time their name had been mentioned is in this order, Mr. One and Mrs. One, Aquila, Priscilla. After that, each time the reference to them would be Priscilla and Aquila. Now, I don't know why. Maybe Priscilla was a very impressive co-worker uh, to Paul and, and others, and um, uh, Dr. Luke, who wrote down the movement of the apostles. But um, the first time when the name came up in Acts 18, as we read in the passage this morning, um, they were born in Pontus, which is south of Armenia, north of Galatia. But then, later on, they moved to the capital of the Roman Empire, Rome in Italy. And they stayed there, have their business. By trade, they are tent makers. Make sure you understand, we are not talking about tent makers of the, the, the kind of tent, the homeless people using this tiny little one. We are talking about the big tent where we have um, a major gathering. So the material is made out of uh, animal skin. So it's a dirty work. You have to kill the animal and get the skin. It's a heavy work. You have to sew them together uh, and so on. Um, that's the, their trade, tent makers. They were enjoying their life in the capital, but then later on, there was a new Roman ruler in town. And the Bible did not say for what reason, but the ruler gave out an edict saying that all those Jews are to be kicked out from the capital. So this diaspora couple from Pontus to the capital of then Roman Empire, and suddenly no fault to their own, they became political refugees. They were forced to leave the capital. So they moved to the city of Corinth and settled there and continued their trade. At the end of the second missionary journey of Apostle Paul, in Acts 17, uh, there was the record of Paul's witness in the cultural center of the time, Athens and then came to Corinth. You have to understand back then, there was no 
missionary guest home. Uh, no hotel either. So he had to find a place to stay during his time of ministry. And he happened to find this couple, Jewish couple. So same background, same ethnicity. They happened to be Christians, so the same faith. And they are tent makers. Now back then, uh, the rabbi, uh, with their training in the Mosaic law, they also have to pick up a tray. So then in case there's no synagogue or no way of uh, making a living by being a rabbi, teaching the law of Moses, they had to have a tray. And in Apostle Paul's case, it happened to be tent-making. So, both of the same background being Jewish, both being the same faith, Christian, both with the same profession, tent-making. So, Paul stayed with them. During his stay, he spent time going to the synagogue and debate with the Jews, taught about Jesus. And you understand that before Paul's conversion, he was a very zealous Pharisee. They followed the Mosaic law. And a very clear instruction is that God's people, the Jewish people, the chosen people should worship God and God alone. There's no other but Yahweh, the great God. Anybody worshipping something else and using the name of Yahweh in vain, that's blasphemy. And according to Jewish law, should be stoned to death. And that's why Jesus was crucified. And then uh, uh, Stephen was stoned to death because of this Jewish understanding of the worship of the only God, Yahweh. And here came Jesus who claimed to be the Son of God, and from time to time even claimed that he is God. And therefore, people following such a person, those Christians, should be persecuted, punished. And there was Saul before his conversion. But after his conversion, he had a very strong compassion for his own kinsmen. And he felt a sense of indebtedness to his fellow kinsmen, the Jewish people. So wherever he traveled, he first would start in the synagogue, engaging uh, conversation with the Jewish believers. And he did the same thing in Corinth. But those Jewish listeners were not just angry with him. They even resort to violence. And because of that, Paul wanted to just take off, quit. And Paul even publicly told them, since it's you who refuse, therefore I have a clean conscience. Your blood is not in my hand and therefore I'm free to live. From now on, I'm going to go to the Gentiles. He said that. But later on in the next chapter, in 
uh, Ephesus, he went back to synagogue again. Not that he's forgetful, but Paul has a very strong conviction that the gospel coming from the Jewish people, and therefore the wonderful message should be preached to the Jews first. During that time, Paul's life was in danger. And this couple, Aquila, Priscilla, opened their home to host this missionary who faced resistance, rejection, and even violent uh, way of responding to him. And yet this couple continued to host Apostle Paul for one and a half years. When Paul was about to give up, and the Lord appeared to him in vision at night, encouraging him, fear not, continue to proclaim the gospel. Do not stop, because I will be with you. Nobody can lay their hands on you. Because of that vision from the Lord, he stayed on and led several to Christ, including the chief ruler of the synagogue. Now, here I want to sidetrack for just a few minutes to talk about the fact that horizontally, Apostle Paul was preaching the gospel to the Jews and had faced resistance. But vertically, the Lord appeared to him and assured him at night, fear not, I'll be with you. Nobody could lay hand on you. Because there are many of my people in this city. So you see the vertical dimension of God's vision, God's commission, God's guidance, God's assurance. I didn't have time to go into the details the last two nights to talk about relational paradigm. I spent time during my last sabbatical at Yale Divinity School conducting research on two subject matters, the Aspa Missiology and Relational Paradigm. To my surprise, in philosophy, there's no relational model. In even theology, there's no relational model. And I published articles and books to explain why, historically, theologically, and so on. But the fact that was, it was not. So I spent time to work on this matter, uh, even though I'm anthropologist, I'm no philosopher nor theologian, so I spend time working on this, what I call relational paradigm, vertical and horizontal. Last night, I talked about our ministry being so programmatic, it's focusing on the horizontal of the success. But vertically, in God's sight, it's not our fruitfulness but it's our faithfulness to Him. Let me repeat. Humanly speaking, we emphasize on success, quantifiable outcome, programmatic approach, managerial entrepreneur strategy in order to bring in visible success, fruitfulness. But God is more concerned with our vertical relationship to Him, faithfulness. Faithfulness is more important than fruitfulness. God working in us 
to call us, to save us, to transform us. Who we are is God vertically working on us. That's our being. Then God worked through us horizontally to share the grace we receive from the Lord, the gospel with others, and that is working for the Lord. That's being, that's doing. It should come as a natural outflow, outflow of our being. God working in us, then working through us. But if we are obsessed with God working through us with our fruitfulness and forget that we are to be faithful witness for the Lord. Last night, I mentioned the fact that mission is not just making disciples to fulfill the Great Commission. So that is the luxury of very few vocational missionaries. Mission primarily is God working in us. We are the witnesses for Him. At home, as parents, you are to be witnesses. At work, with your co-workers, you are to be witnesses. We are the salt and the light. Witness is important. And therefore, don't say that I'm not a missionary. And even though I'm a missionary, I'm a Bible translator, so I only translate Bible. I don't make disciples, so I don't do mission. I'm not involved with the fulfillment of the Great Commission. That's wrong. Everybody receives the grace from the Lord, being worked by the Lord to save you, to cause you, to change you, to protect you, to guide you. We all have the duty to bear witness for Him. That's our being. So that's why we have marketplace evangelism. We have business as mission. No Christian should have any excuse to engage in witnessing, witnessing by your life. If you are a lawyer, be the best possible lawyer for the Lord. If you're a teacher, be the best teacher in your school. If you're an IT programmer, be the per best person, not just carrying out the duty, but you are the diligent, the loving, the gentle, and people see you just like reading a living Bible. You are the witnesses. So in this mission convention, we are not talking about a few people go there and make disciples. I'm challenged to go back to the Scripture to bear witness. The Father witnessed for the Son at the time of baptism, Jesus coming out from the water, and the Father said, this is my beloved Son. The Father bore witness for the Son. The Son in His whole life bearing witness for the Father. The Holy Spirit was sent in Jesus' name to bear witness for the Father and the Son. So, mission of God is intrinsic in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said, as the Father sent me, so send I you to bear witness for Him at the marketplace, at school, among your neighbors, at home for your children, for your extended family members. You are His witnesses. Jesus called Lazarus coming out from the dead. That's God's resurrection power working on him. 
in John chapter 11. Chapter, John chapter 12, he was sitting there with Jesus and his sister Mary anointed Jesus. Many came not only to see Jesus, but to see Lazarus. And the Jews plotted to kill not only Jesus, but Lazarus. Why? Because he was sitting there. He did not make any disciple. He did not stand up and make a testimony. I was in the tomb and Jesus called me to come out. He didn't do anything. He was just sitting there. But his being there is a witness for the Lord. That's why they can't stand it. They want to kill him. You and I are God's witnesses. As the Father sent the Son, in the same manner, He's sending us to the whole world to be His witnesses. So here, we have this interesting situation that Paul, humanly speaking, faced resistance. And yet, Vertically, the Lord assured him, do not be afraid. I will be with you. So he has to be faithful to God's commissioning. Continue to stay on. And it's interesting that the husband and wife, being a host to Apostle Paul, for how long? One and a half years. Anybody married with a guest, you understand. Shh, we have a guest. Uh, hold your fire. Wait till we go back to the bedroom because the pastor is here. So husband and wife hosting missionary Paul, not for a month, not for one year. It's one and a half years. So the two of them have to have a sense of unity, agreement, risking their life to host Apostle Paul. If we look at this diaspora couple from being political refugee into kingdom laborers, this is phase one. Phase two. Phase two is that later on, Paul went on to, Jerusalem, uh, to Ephesus. And this couple put down the business and followed Apostle Paul and accompanied him. But then, upon arrival, not too long, Paul felt the calling to go back to Jerusalem and report to the Antioch church and left this couple in Ephesus. And they became the founding members of the church in Ephesus. Second time. First time church planting along with Paul in Corinth. Remember, they are political refugees in Corinth. Second time church planting in Ephesus when Paul left them there. This is political Refugee, a diaspora couple. And later on, there's a new pastor in town, Apollos, who was born in Alexandria in Egypt. During that time, there were two cultural centers. 
one in Athens, as reported in 17. Another one is in Alexandria in Egypt. At the time, the largest library collection was found in Alexandria. So Apollos is someone with a lot of good qualities. He has been taught in the Word. He is a man of high learning. He's very eloquent. He's very zealous for the Lord. He is faithful in teaching the Word. But unfortunately, this new preacher, pastor, Apollos, knew only the baptism of repentance of John the Baptist. So when this couple heard his teaching, there's some deficiency there. So they opened their home the third time. First time in Corinth, hosting the missionary. Second time in Ephesus, in church planting, and now opened the home third time to invite this young preacher to their house in order to help him overcome this defective understanding about baptism. You said, who are they? Can be a teacher of a learned man like Apollos, eloquent, have been taught in the Word, zealous. How could they qualify to coach Apollos? You have to remember, back then, there was no TV. There's no computer game. One and a half years, busy doing tent making. And the the mouth and the ear, Paul could use one and a half years to give them personal discipleship. They learned directly from Apostle Paul. And now, they are able to privately, quietly help this new preacher. Not in the church. I was in one church. There was one time a preacher preaching. I was just visiting, passing through. And the preacher said something. Somebody in the congregation raised their hand and then stand up and say, Pastor, the original language is not that because I learned it in the seminary. It was not like that. This couple quietly, privately opened the home and coached this young preacher and help him. Later on, at the end of chapter 18, talking about him leaving for somewhere else, sending them, they sent him out, and the Lord used him mightily. Then later on, we go to Romans chapter 16. At the end of the chapter, uh, of the book, you have the personal greetings of Paul to those in Rome. You have to remember, Paul, when he wrote the letter, he never had a chance to visit the capital and the church. So he had to greet people in order to make connection. In Chinese, we call it Lai Guan Hai. In Romans 16, if you count the personal greetings, the total in one chapter, 
It's more than all the Pauline epistles' personal greeting add together. I did an inductive study. I don't tell you. You go home and you, 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 you prove me wrong. The first greeting is to the leader of the church, Deaconess Phoebe. Secondly, immediately, greet Priscilla and Aquila. Who are they? Paul mentioned they were my co-workers. And then Paul said, they, in the original language, in many of the English translations, is that they risked their life to save me. The Chinese translation and the King James is very faithful to the original. They risked their neck for my sake. Therefore, all the churches and the Gentile churches, including Chinese churches, should say thank you to them. If Paul was killed in Corinth, there's no more third journey and no more gospel spreading to North America. Then American missionary went to Guangxi, Liu Zhou, evangelized my father so that we accepted Christ. So I also joined with many Gentile churches to say thank you to this couple. Political refugee, church planting in Corinth, coaching the young preacher in Ephesus where they were the founding members of church planting, the church in Ephesus the second time. In Romans 16, and Paul said, also greet the church in the home. So they return back to Rome, the capital. They start another church. Who are they? Ten makers. Lay people. But the Lord blessed this couple, political refugees, to become kingdom laborers. What about you? What about you? Church planting in Corinth, in Ephesus, and then back in Rome again. Bearing witness is their lifestyle. It's not something you do, but who you are. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for gathering us together. Even with the threat of virus and all that, we here worship you. And we learn from this couple. We ask that you will speak to our hearts. Let us, husband and wife, unite together in hospitality, like hosting Apostle Paul, risking their lives. Thank you that we could gather together and worship you. You are the Lord of history. You are the Lord of our lives. May we uh, be faithful witnesses for you. It's in Jesus' name we pray together. Amen. Amen.